This is Dana McClendon, and this is Ready for Trial. My guest today is Josh Windham. Josh is, I guess what I would call a public policy lawyer from the uh, Washington, D.C. area. And Josh has got an interesting case going on in Tennessee. So in Tennessee, we have something called the TWRA. That's the Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency. They are a statewide law enforcement agency. They are primarily responsible for uh, enforcing hunting and fishing regulations, although they do have much more expansive jurisdiction than that. I've not done this experiment, but I think I know how it would go. If you asked 100 Tennesseans on the sidewalk, does the government have the right to send a law enforcement agent onto your private property without a warrant, without your permission, and without giving you notice for the purpose of surveilling you and your guests and potentially uh, arresting you for violations of the law, most people, I think, would say, absolutely not, that ain't right, or that's unconstitutional. You might then be surprised to learn that the TWRA does exactly that. And they are not even ashamed of it. In fact, they are in court to defend their right to do that. That's what Josh and I talk about today. Now, a little background. Uh, a little over 100 years ago, the United States Supreme Court decided a case and pronounced what is now known as the Open Fields Doctrine. And you'll hear more about that in this recording. But the long and short of it is this. The TWRA does, in fact, as a practice, not even apologize for entering private property to, uh, without a warrant, uh, without permission, and without notice to the landowner to conduct surveillance, including by leaving cameras on the property of the landowner. And they've done that and then taken people to federal court and prosecuted them for violations of various hunting and fishing regulations and laws. So uh, Josh and his team uh, think that that should be found unconstitutional. So that's what we talk about today. Uh, so without further ado, I give you Josh Windham. Hit record says recording. Okay. My guest today is Josh Windham. Josh is an attorney with the Institute for Justice. Justice. Thank you for joining me, Josh. Hey, thanks so much for having me. All right. So let's do a little background uh, on you. You, um, you went to North Carolina State undergrad. That's right. With a Bachelor of Arts in History, it says. That's right. You got it. And then you went to the University of North Carolina Law School. Pretty, pretty good school. Hard to get into. Um, and you graduated in uh, what? 2016? 2016. Are you from North Carolina? Yep. From North Carolina. Grew up in Charlotte. Uh, obviously went to school in Raleigh and Chapel Hill. And now I'm up here in Arlington, Virginia, right outside of DC at IJ. So uh, I actually um, lived for a long time in Winston-Salem and Hickory, and I went to high school in Asheville. Oh, great. I spent a summer in Asheville and just absolutely loved it. Yeah. I I, I did not much enjoy my time there. I was in boarding school. Um, uh, so you couldn't have the local beer? No. I was, uh, I was a teenager, and I was confined to the campus with no car and only 10 girls. So um, <laughs> it was rough. Um, but that is not why we were here. So you got out of law school. Um, what made you want to be a lawyer? Well, in college, I started to develop pretty strong views about, um, you know, right and wrong, about the role of government, about just sort of core moral values. And I started to realize that 
one of the biggest purveyors of injustice in the world was the very entity that was charged with being just the government. You know, it's the point of government. It's the function of government to protect our lives, to ensure we have the freedom we need to, to pursue our flourishing and happiness. And it seemed like to me, the government was doing a lot of things in a systematic way that was making that impossible for people. And so I thought, okay, I have to do something about this. Um, and law seemed like a really good way of doing it because it's, it's sort of this really cool combination of, you know, if you're a police officer, you're out there in the trenches, um, you know, protecting people from thieves, robbers, that kind of thing. That's, that's pretty cool work, but it's dangerous. And, you know, it's not super intellectual. If you're a professor, um, you don't really get to see the results of your work. You know, you're sort of fighting the, the long game of history. So I thought law was a really cool combination of being sort of an intellectual warrior. <laughs> it's funny. I describe myself as a mercenary at law. Uh, so, um, your history degree, was it mostly American history? No, I actually, I actually studied intellectual history for the most part. Um, we're doing a lot of bridging between, um, European history and, and the development of philosophy. And so, um, you know, I studied 17th and 18th century political thought. Oh, all the stuff that the founders read. Yeah, exactly right. I did a lot of enlightenment studying and, um, I would say that stuff was formative in my development. Okay. So I uh, go to law school um, and along the way conclude, I'm going to be a lawyer and I'm going to, I'll put words in your mouth. I'm going to go fight these wrongs that the very government that's not supposed to do it is doing. Yeah, you got it. I mean, it. I originally I wanted to go into criminal defense work. Um, I'm very anti-war on drugs. And I thought that um, going into criminal defense was a way of making a difference in that space. And so a lot of my law school career was actually devoted to pursuing that kind of work, gaining that kind of experience and doing a lot of applying to jobs that would allow me to work in that field. Um, it was only sort of at the tail end of my law school career that I realized that IJ was a, um, was an avenue I could pursue. Uh, and here I am. Okay. So, uh, sounds like you got the perfect job. It is the dream job. I mean, what we do is incredibly, re yeah, I mean, it's, it's, okay. it's incredibly rewarding, but it's also, um, it's also fun. Uh, you know, it's, it's challenging. It really pushes me to my limits and, um, the clients, uh, are one of the, one of the main joys of doing this work. You know, one of my colleagues before I started working here told me that, you know, in big law, your clients are corporations often and corporations don't give you hugs. Um, my clients, my clients give me hugs. My clients, um, you know, cry on the phone when I tell them that we've won a case. My clients are wonderful, warm, real people with, um, with lives. Right. And that's, I love defending them. Yeah. That's funny. Cause I was at, let's say big law. I loved the job I had at a law school, but it was a, it was a big and now super big firm. Um, and uh, as a very, very young associate, a baby shark, I was tasked with this impossible thing. And I found, I found the case that said we could win. And it kept a guy from being indicted uh, for tax problems. And it, um, it created a world in which he would not be indicted. He just had to pay the taxes that he should have paid anyway. So we bring him in to tell him what I thought was like amazingly good news. Uh, and the partner's going over this with him. And the guy's like, wait, you mean I'm still going to have to pay the taxes? And the partner's like, yeah, but you're not going to get indicted. And he was furious. 
this guy was seriously facing like a significant indictment for tax fraud. Um, and so I had, and this was back in the day, you, you're too young to remember this, but back in the day we had these things called books. Uh, and it was, it was really hard to do the legal research. So, uh, he was mad. He left. I looked at the partner and I said, what just happened? And he said, Dana, if you want gratitude, get a puppy. <laughs> so, yeah, although that comes with, with its own set of challenges. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on the, uh, I got out of that in part because I did like representing people uh, and not big companies. So I'm with you on uh, the the reward and satisfaction of having an individual grateful for the effort that you have made. Yeah. So you wind up at the Institute for Justice. Um, what is it that the Institute for Justice does? Um, and then we're going to, we'll once we find out what your employer does, we'll turn to a specific case that I called you about to begin with. Well, IJ is the national law firm for liberty. We're a nonprofit public interest law firm that litigates under four main areas, um, educational choice, free speech, property rights, and economic liberty. And the case you called me about is about property rights. It's about a person's right to own and use their property as they wish, as long as they're not hurting other people. And um, that's what this so, case is about. So you guys are basically a nationwide legal representation team. Yeah, we pursue, you know, public interest work is is pursuing strategic goals in your litigation to try to move the ball forward on the law. So, you know, under these four pillars of our litigation, we've got ideas about problems in the law, ways in which we think people's constitutional rights are not being protected, and some of the doctrines that are that are making that possible. And, you know, our goal in taking cases is to is to move the ball forward and set new precedent that other people can use to vindicate their rights. So you guys kind of take test cases or, or litmus test cases where like the issue, the issue is squarely presented here and we want to be on the right side of history. We want to take this issue and change the law or make the law. Yeah. Uh, we want to make the law. That's exactly right. Um, one of the things that. So you're not out there just waiting for the phone to ring for the next car wreck. Yeah, not, not only that, um, we're also not out there to take the easy cases. You know, often people reach out to us and ask, you know, can you represent me? I, I need pro bono representation. I have a really strong case. And, you know, strong case is good, um, but we don't exist to take the easy cases. You know, we exist to to change bad precedent. And that often means taking the hard cases. Right. So, uh, and sometimes even a very unpopular case, maybe. Well, we try to craft our cases in a way that are going to be appealing to kind of the guy on the street. Um, okay. The kind of case that you can explain to somebody in an elevator ride, you know, right. um, that's going to hit them in their gut and they're going to say, wow, I can't believe that's going on. Somebody should do something about that. And my answer right. is we are. Or, or the man on the street says, well, that ain't right. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's the reaction <laughs> we want from our cases. Okay. All right. So um, you've got an eye. The, the philosophy is protect and defend the constitution, um, take cases, make law, change law, go where it needs to be done. Uh, and, and bring your, your phalanx of lawyers with you and wherever that, where, as the Tennessee association of criminal defense lawyers likes to say, wherever justice requires it or wherever justice demands it, whatever. That's a pretty good summary. All right. So you're, so you're, you guys are 50 States and, uh, state and federal court all over the place. Yeah, yeah, we have we have um, offices in just a few states, but we litigate all over the country. All right, so um, 
for, and, and I've spent some time looking at your website and there's some really interesting things there. You got a podcast, you've got some newsletters that come out. So if people are interested, it's ij.org. Um, and you can make, you can donate to their cause and, and read about what they do and get newsletters and all that stuff. It's pretty cool stuff. They're doing, they're doing Liberty, uh, Liberty oriented work here. So, which brings me to the case that I called you about, as you know, I'm in Tennessee and IJ.org and you in particular are now lead counsel for a case that is pending in Benton County, Tennessee, the county seat of which is Camden. Uh, I spend a good deal of time in Camden for reasons unrelated to this lawsuit, of course, but um, why don't you, okay, so the case is, um, the case is Rainwaters and Hollingsworth versus the Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency, uh, the the executive director of that and an individual TWRA agent. Uh, why don't you tell us sort of the thumbnail of what that case is about, and then we'll do more of a deep dive into the facts and legal issues that uh, that are present in that case. Sure. So we represent two individuals who own um, farmland property in Benton County. One of them is named Terry Rainwaters. He owns about a 136 acres of land on which he lives. Uh, he has another house that he rents to a tenant and he does a fair amount of farming on the property. And he also hunts there with his hunting license. Our other client is Hunter Hollingsworth. He owns um, over 90 acres of land in Benton County. And he mostly hunts on the property, does some farming, um, uses it recreationally, camping, fishing, that kind of stuff with buddies. He doesn't live on the property. But the key feature of both these properties for purposes of this case is that they are private property. They are marked as private property. There's a gate up that says no no trespassing when you get to the entrance of the property. And anybody passing this property would know that this is private land. Um, The case came to us after we heard from these folks that um, a few years ago, they discovered surveillance cameras on their properties. In particular, Terry uh, his son discovered two uh, surveillance cameras hanging from trees uh, on his property by some of his farming fields. And Hunter also discovered a surveillance camera on one of his trees. And it appeared that one of the branches in his tree uh, had been cut to make room for the camera to see um, his property clearly. Now, we found out that these cameras were installed by TWRA officers um, snooping on the property to see if they could uncover uh evidence of hunting violations. And so, and this lawsuit- and key, key factor, and I'll just, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but key factor is at no time has there been a search warrant or an arrest warrant issued for the justification of the placement of these cameras on private property, correct? Right. Yeah. This law- okay. lawsuit is about challenging the warrantless entry of okay. these wildlife officers onto the properties and the warrantless installation of these cameras to search and that's that's the big so the 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 key issue here is this warrantless entry and surveillance for the purpose of law enforcement activity and we'll we'll circle back to that but basically you got two farmers out in out in rural tennessee who find cameras put by the t put there by the twra who had no permission or warrant to do it yeah that's exactly right And 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 it turns out they've done this this wasn't just them. They, they. I don't want to. I don't want to spoil the out the ending here. But 
TWRA is not even ashamed of this. They, 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 they pretty much conceded in this lawsuit that, yeah, this is what we do. We're allowed to do it in tough nuts. Yeah. You know, it's, it's their position. And they, they've said this to the legislature that they need to be able to conduct these kinds of warrantless entries. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say that they've conceded that in this lawsuit, but it's certainly something they've said elsewhere. Um, well, they don't and- deny that. <laughs> okay. So, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of run back and forth between talking about this like laymen or for the talking about this in a way that you don't have to be a lawyer to understand. And on the other hand, lawyer to lawyer talk. So, at the posture of the case at the moment is that they, they, and we'll come back and flesh this out, but so far they have not denied that they placed these cameras. That's right. And, you know, we'll see what happens later in the case, but there's no reason at this point to think that they're going to deny that the cameras were placed there by TWRA officers. And, and these cameras are not just cameras. They're actually, they're actually, if I understand what I've read, they're actually creating a, a contemporaneous electronic delivery of the v- images that they capture to offsite. Yeah. I mean, these, these cameras um, in Hunter's case, you know, the, when Hunter found the camera, he took out the SIM card and found over a thousand pictures that had been taken of, you know, TWRA officers entering and leaving his property of him entering and leaving of his friends um, of the property with no one there. Maybe a squirrel went by and the camera went off, but you know, this is it's, a lot it's, of photos. It's plain. But, it's very plain that these are not cameras put there by trespassers or poacher hunters. Oh no, no. These, right. these are placed by, yeah, these are placed by right, TWRA. Right. Like, like you can tell that TWRA is putting these cameras up. That's what you have alleged. And, um, the, the, the status of the pleadings is such that if TWRA wanted to say, those aren't our cameras, we don't know anything about that. They should have done that by now and they haven't. Well, they haven't found an answer yet in the case. Um, but that would have so, been a great thing to say in their motion to dismiss, which we'll cover in a minute. Maybe. I mean, what, <laughs> for, the, for, the, for the non-lawyers, I don't want to get too technical, but when we, you know, when, the, when there's a motion to dismiss filed, all the allegations in the, the complaint are assumed right. true. And so, you know, when they're saying this case should okay. be dismissed, that's that's assumed, right? And right, so, yeah. you know, maybe they'll deny. Um, but this stage, I don't have any reason to think that they will, especially given things that they've said, not only to the legislature, but, you know, they've done this before to other people. Um, Hunter and Terry aren't the first, and I'm sure they won't be the last unless we win this case. Right. Okay. So, the for purposes of our discussion, let's assume the following. TWRA has a practice, at least in some places, of entering private property, placing surveillance cameras, sending the the images that are captured by the surveillance cameras up to a cell tower and on to some recipient, presumably TWRA, and then acting upon what they see, conducting further investigation up to and including arrests and prosecutions. True. That's a fair. That's a fair summary. And one thing I would add is that, you know, what we know, at least from from the from Hunter's situation, is that not only do they enter and install the camera, that's not all they do. I mean, in Hunter's case, you had an officer actually spending hours and hours wandering around his property with a video camera, recording footage of him and his friends while hiding behind bushes and trees. I right. mean, so you've got just very, not very, just the it's not just the electronic surveillance. It's it's actually people, in addition, yes. hiding in bushes photographing them doing things. And for the most part, it sounds like what they've captured the, the 
landowners and their friends doing is rather ordinary stuff. Um, farming, hanging laundry, whatever. In other yeah. words, these, they, 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 and um, if I understand correctly, at least one of your clients has never been charged with a crime related to any of this activity. That's right. I mean, Terry is, Terry has a completely cr- clean record, um, not only hunting, but more broadly, he's a stand-up guy. He's been in uh, Camden his entire life. You know, he works at, um, he's a mechanical technician in town and he just, he lives on the property with his son kind of going right. about. So this his, is, it's not just, quiet it's, not just business. A, it's not a cornfield. It's his home. Oh, it's his and home. And this is yeah. not a guy with a criminal history. Right. Nor has any of this surveillance led to an, an allegation an arrest and an indictment or a conviction of any kind. So it's not, not like, the, no. right. It's not like the TWRA is out there investigating a known moonshiner. Um, <laughs> and, and you're trying to like create some, let's call it loophole or, or escape hatch for his wrong conduct. This is a stand-up guy who's been there his whole life farming, hunting on his land and raising a family. That's right. Um, and, but I would just add that, you know, even if Terry had, had been convicted of some offense, the, as you stressed earlier, the problem here is that the initial entries of the property and placements of the camera were warrantless. Right. And okay. that's we're, we're challenging. We're, right. So I, we're going to, I want to get back. I just want to lay the facts out here. So like for the listeners, we're talking about government surveillance of people who have never been charged with a crime. Um, and the only thing that the TW, the, all right. So the only thing that the TWRA, um, I guess they're just traveling upon the idea that, well, he's got a field, he, he hunts, we better look in on him. Sounds like kind of what their motive is. That Um, sounds about right. Now, uh, to be fair, Hunter Hollingsworth did get charged with some hunting violation, right? Yeah. He got charged with a federal baiting offense. Okay. Um, but again, that was a, was that a, uh, the result of these warrantless searches? Yes. I mean, the, the initial investigation into Hunter um, was was conducted by a TWRA officer entering the property without a warrant, without probable cause to snoop around and see what he could find. And, he, and lo and behold, he he snared up Hunter in a basically not cutting his corn down correctly or something. Effectively, I mean, right. I don't know how much hunting you do, but but sometimes the difference between baiting and um, not baiting is how straight you can drive your tractor. I guess you're you're describing the offense correctly. <laughs> okay, all right. So Hunter ends up with uh, a baiting offense, but that is the product of this in, of this investigative technique, to be generous, uh, of warrantless entry and surveillance of private property owners going about their business. Yep. And we're not, you know, to be clear to, for the listeners, we're not challenging the offense or trying to get it overturned or anything like that. Um, he pled guilty right. to it. What we're trying to do is to get this policy and practice that TWR is engaged in stopped for the future. Right. Okay. So to be, so, so let's set this up a little more. You have filed a lawsuit in the circuit court of Benton County and the lawsuit essentially says, um, to the judge, we want you to declare that this conduct is unlawful unconstitutional. We want you to tell TWRA that they cannot do this here or anywhere. And we want you to award $1 in damages for the sake of having, uh, you know, to do it because that's sort of the, 
it, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes these things don't necessarily make sense. But in this context, you want the court, it's not about money. You're not asking the court to, to like t- fine these guys or, or big, make a big award of money. You want $1 plus your fees. Yep. Okay. So it's really about stopping this practice, not only as to your clients, but as to anyone in Tennessee. Yeah. And that goes with what I was saying earlier about kind of the work we do. The goal is to to help a lot of people by winning a case that's going to set good precedent, right? Right. So, okay. So, so the idea is that not only will this policy and practice get struck down, but hopefully if Tennessee courts recognize, and we can talk about this, obviously, that our constitutional claim has some validity, then other plaintiffs can come in in other right. contexts where government may be abusing people's constitutional rights, conducting warrantless searches of private land, and use this precedent to their advantage. So if you win this and TWRA does it again, well, then you can pop them for some, some, some real money. But that's not what you're doing here. Here, you're just saying, look, the rules are wrong. What you're doing is wrong. It's unconstitutional. We want you to stop. Um, now, so let's set this stage a little more with some of the law. It turns out that in Tennessee, there is a statute that, um, that specifically says that a TWRA agent without a warrant can enter private property, not a home, but private property for the purpose of investigating, even without a tip or a a suspicion, they can just wander onto your private property and do exactly what these guys are doing. Yeah, it's codified in in state statute. Um, You know, the law empowers the agency's executive director to, to do this and to delegate that authority to officers. And so you know, we're trying to get this statute struck down. Right. So as a, so if you're, if you're a lawyer or if you just want to go read it, it's Tennessee code annotated uh, 70-1-305 subpart one. And it says that the executive director of the wildlife resources agency has the power to enforce all laws relating to wildlife and to go upon any property outside of buildings posted or otherwise, in the performance of the executive director's duties. He can delegate that to, and has, uh, apparently, delegated that to all of his agents. So anyone wearing a TWRA badge can enter any property outside of buildings and just just for the sake of looking around, according yeah, to this I statute. Mean, yeah, and the, you know, this is, a, this is a striking proposition, right? Because what it means is that suppose you own 100 acres of land and you have a home on that land and the home is the only building building, right? For the sake of making this simple. Um, 99 of those 100 acres receive zero protection from from these sorts of searches under the statute. Right. Now, all right. So we're going to have to get down in the weeds a little bit because I suspect that if you're not a lawyer or if you are a lawyer and you are not familiar with what's called the open fields doctrine, you are scratching your head saying, well, that ain't right. They can't just come on your property and do that. Well, turns out, Josh, that under prevailing federal law, they can. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been the rule uh, for almost 100 years now under U.S. Supreme Court precedent that um, what are called open fields, which is a term we can unpack in a second, are not entitled to any protection against unreasonable searches and seizures under the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Okay, so the Fourth Amendment says, this is the Fourth, the fourth Amendment, of course, is the a federal amendment that says, on the Bill of Rights, it says, that uh, persons, property, and what is the exact words? Possessions or, or effects. It's persons, houses, papers, and effects. Right. Are not subject to unreasonable searches and seizures. Right. right. And so this is where the whole warrant requirement comes up. And so your man on the street probably has a 
conceptual understanding of what that means. It means they can't just walk in your house and start looking around without a warrant. Many people would assume that my house means what's on my deed, the, the hundred acres, as you just said, hypothetically, they would, many people would assume, well, they need a warrant to go out to the back 40 and, and look around. But under a Supreme court case from 1924, which was later affirmed and refined in 1984, yeah. uh, the federal, the United States Supreme Court has said, yes, they can, because they found that there is no expectation of privacy in a, quote, open field. Yeah, it's it's sort of a, you basically summarize it all, but let me make it a bit more precise. So in, the, in, in a case called Hester in 1924, and this is a case involving um, moonshine production on private property. Yeah, interestingly enough, both of these cases involve underlying illegal activity, right. Hester and Oliver. So Hester is... 265 U.S. 57, if you want to read along at home. Uh, yeah, and, and it's, it's very short, by the way. It's, it's a, right. just like a few paragraphs. Right, and Oliver is uh, 466 U.S. 170, if you want to read, read along at home. But So tell us a little bit about the Hester case and the Oliver case and where that left you and how that, how that sort of framed the claims that you now have to make in Benton County. Okay. So I'll, I'll try to do all this succinctly. So Hester is this 1924 case involving moonshining. And basically what happened there is that officers drove up to this guy's house that they had received a tip, was engaged in, in moonshining, and they hid about 100 yards away in some bushes and watched as the suspect handed off a, a quart bottle of what ended up being with to somebody else. And now this is they, during they, prohibition, right? During prohibition, it's 1924. They, they, their sirens went off. Um, the suspect ran, he dropped the bottle. They seized it. They're like, okay, this is whiskey. And they charge him. Um, the court holds in a very terse opinion written by Justice Holmes that the Fourth Amendment does not protect. This um, is the shortest fields. Supreme Court opinion I've ever seen. And it's not even close. And in fact, if you look at most of it is the facts. If you kind of, if you read it, there's only actually one line of analysis, maybe two lines of analysis for the Fourth Amendment claim here. The suspect, Hester, basically says, look, you entered my property without a warrant. Um, this evidence has to be excluded, or at least the testimony of the officers have to be excluded, and you can't convict me based on that <laughs> evidence. And uh, the court, Justice Holmes writes, and, and basically a single sentence, um, and I can just read it to you because it's so well, short. The, yeah, the, the, the one I'm looking at says... This evidence, meaning the contraband, was not obtained by the entry into the house, and it is immaterial to discuss that. <laughs> yeah, and, and the court goes on, right? The court goes on to say, as to the evidence, you know, testimony about what happened on the land itself, um, it is enough to say that apart from the justification, the special protection accorded by the Fourth Amendment to the people and their persons, houses, papers, and effects, that's in quotes, is not extended to the open fields. Period. Period. I mean, the distinction between the latter and the house is as old as the common law and a citation to which blacks, I guess that's an old, I don't even know what that citation is too. It's so, a citation to Blackstone's commentaries. Yeah. Okay. So, so a hundred years of jurisprudence later, and I, I didn't shepherdize um, Hester, but I suppose that there are probably hundreds, maybe thousands of cases that cite to it. A um, hundred years of jurisprudence later, uh, this is the bedrock, this is the ground upon which the open fields doctrine sits, no pun intended. Um, the entire the entire legal apparatus for this statute in Tennessee that says 
they can go on your property without a warrant and look around for no reason at all lies on this Supreme Court opinion that may be 500 words. It, this is the edifice, although I should note that I suspect it would be subject to much more scrutiny if it was just Hester. I mean, it's a pretty old case, but I think Oliver really did a job of bolstering Hester that it, it's right. hard to discount. So there's right. a- 60 years later, they circle back in a case involving marijuana cultivation. Yes. And they, they triple down on Hester, right? They, yeah, exactly right. And one thing that listeners should know, and I think that some of your listeners are lawyers and they'll know this, but there was a case called Katz a few decades before Oliver. So this is in the 60s. And Katz is this sort of sea change in Fourth Amendment law because in Katz, the court says that the, the test for determining whether a search or seizure has occurred and the Fourth Amendment applies is whether the person had a reasonable expectation of privacy in the thing that was searched or seized. And so that test sounds as shaky and squishy as it is. Uh, it right. doesn't, it's, doesn't. How do really I know? Mean, I'll I'll let you know when I t- when I yeah. when I figure it out. Right. Exactly. And so what the court does in Oliver is it it reanalyzes this open fields question, this question of whether a search the Fourth Amendment applies to open fields. Um, through the lens of cats and says, okay, given that this is now our framework, um, what do we think about this? And the court reaffirms the open fields doctrine and says, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in activities conducted on land people can just see if they walk by. And that's kind of the the extent of the court's analysis. There's um, a really interesting dissenting opinion from Justice Marshall that I love, but we can talk about that a bit later. Uh, by the way, Katz, if you want to read it, 389 U.S. 347. Right. A and 19, so a, 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 an opinion issued four days before I was born. And so if I can, if I could summarize sorry, it, argue, state- argued four days before I was born, but go ahead. So, <laughs> so Katz makes this, this basically ad hoc rule where, well, we'll let you, we'll, we'll figure out from case to case, whether or not you had a reasonable expectation of privacy. Yeah. And what, one thing the court says in Oliver that, that is actually having impacts today on on some more recent litigation is that even if a person makes efforts to clarify to people walking by that the property is private so like no trespassing signs yeah and oliver there were were gates there were no trespassing signs just like terry has up just like hunter has up and in this case in tennessee in oliver the court says look it doesn't matter what the individual does to try to show that this is private land it matters what society would expect. It right. It's not what you think. It's not whether you think, hey, I put up these signs. I grew all these plants around my property. I, uh, you know, I, I have only one road in and out and it's gated. It doesn't matter what you thought your expectation was. It's the reasonable man society standard. Yeah. I mean, I can just, here's, here's a nice line that kind of summarizes it. The court says the test of legitimacy is not whether the individual chooses to conceal assertedly private activity. Rather, the correct inquiry is whether the government's intrusion infringes upon the personal and societal values protected by the Fourth Amendment. So that almost, I mean, they didn't exactly say this, I don't guess, but that almost kind of flips the script, doesn't it? It's like, no longer does the government have to justify the intrusion. Now you have to like, not only attempt to exclude the intrusion, you also have to have basically um, common agreement among the culture that, that, you had done so uh, in a way that the culture and society recognizes. Yeah, it's you're you're right about it flipping flipping the script. I mean, 
my bigger problem with Oliver, if we zoom out a little bit, is just that the court in this case is treating um, is treating an individual right like it waxes and wanes with what society thinks. And okay. that yeah, is that not too. how the Constitution is supposed to work. <laughs> right. Like, oh, 20 years from now, maybe people will feel differently. But for now, right, like these are supposed to be like like durable rules. Yeah. I mean, they're principles, right? They're supposed to be time enduring. And, and I, I mean, I guess I've done some constitutional work I, along the way in almost 30 years, but like this, this cat's doctrine, uh, how many other places does the reasonable man standard define your constitutional right from the bill of rights? And that may be an unfair question to hit you with, but it just strikes me as like, um, well, well, I can, I'll say a little bit about this because it, the answer is not simple, but, and I don't want to get us off the rails, but there is an, there is an answer here. And it's that, so are you familiar at all with, with rational basis review and that kind sure. of, sure the, okay, so, the different levels of scrutiny? Yeah. So, so most of the things that we do every day are, you know, if a law infringes on that activity or restricts it, that's going to be subject to what's called rational basis review, which is a very deferential standard of review that a court will apply to, to the law and whether it's constitutional or not. And there's a way in which any case involving rational basis review, involving an extreme amount of deference to the government, um, does involve the same kind of looking to what the public thinks as opposed to what the individual's rights are, because the whole basis of that kind of deferential review is that the will of the people needs to prevail, right? The will of the people as expressed in the legislative um, enactment. Kind of the Lockean social contract type thing. Yeah, it needs, needs to prevail over the individual's rights. And so that's, right. we there are ways one, in which we can't, this, we can't have a, we can't have 400 million different rules. Right. There's a we way in have which, to have a consensus of rules. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, uh, you get you 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 get stuck with Hester Oliver Katz uh, at the federal level, and so at at the federal level, um, your client's constitutional uh, claims are a dead letter un- unless and until the Supreme Court revisits and changes those rules, right? Yeah, and, and we know this because uh, Hunter actually attempted to file a, a civil suit in federal court, and uh, his suit was dismissed last year in the U.S. District Court um, in the Western District of Tennessee. He brought a Fourth Amendment claim and a claim under the Tennessee State Constitution. His Fourth Amendment claim was dismissed under the Open Fields Doctrine, but the court declined to exercise jurisdiction over the state constitutional claim. And here we are filing Boom, in there, state court. And this is where you come in. So you're, so to be, to, to remind people how this country works, we are a, a, a federal Republic, right? Where, and you fix me if I get this wrong, but basically every state can raise the bar of your rights. They just can't lower it below where the federal government puts it. Is that fair? Yeah. And that has to do, that's rooted in the supremacy clause, right? Which says that like states can't violate federal law. They can't restrict your rights. And Um, they can't offer you less than the federal constitution says you get. Right. Okay. But a state can, and in this case, your position, I guess, is that 
the state can actually create more rights for you. And in this case, your position, I think, is, hey, under the state of Tennessee's constitution, these guys have a right to be free from this warrantless search uh, and intrusion and trespass because the state of Tennessee's constitution provides a, a higher level of protection from that. That- yeah, that, so the, I would say the last part of that is is the mo- most accurate because I wouldn't say the state is going to create rights um, that you that you don't have under federal law. What I, what I would say is that they're protecting these rights, these natural rights, okay. um, to a greater extent than the U.S. Constitution. Okay, so th- they're recognizing it, not creating it. Yeah, um, that, yeah, which is which is a big difference. Um, not one to be looked over, and I was careless in that way uh, in saying it that way. But so your position, so you come in. And you file this um, lawsuit and you, your, your lawsuit basically says, hey, the federal constitution would not give us, has not recognized this right this way. But the state constitution does because the state constitution's uh, prohibition on these warrantless searches and seizures is a little different. It's worded a little differently. Yeah, there's actually a textual basis for the difference in our claim here. So the it's, it's Article 1, Section 7 of the Tennessee Constitution. And unlike the U.S. Constitution and the Fourth Amendment, which right. protects persons, houses, papers, and effects. This um, one says possessions. Yeah, it says uh, persons, houses, papers, and possessions. And Tennessee courts for actually almost as long as Hester has been around, since 1926, which is two years after Hester, have recognized that this word possessions includes um, things like farmland, as long as people is, use the land. Is, a, is essentially bigger than effects. Yep. Yeah, exactly it, right. It, it includes more protection because possessions. And by the way, uh, in preparing for this um, podcast interview, I was looking over the Tennessee Constitution. And if you consider yourself a patriot and a person who loves liberty, you should read it. Uh, it'll fire you up because the the, the authors of the Tennessee Constitution, um, they seem to be somewhat angry when they wrote it. Um, and they, well, they, you sort know, they, of, <laughs> they sort of said, hey, not only do you have the right to, uh, to fight against tyranny, you better do it. The, you know, what you'll find is that state constitutions are, are so undertaught and so underappreciated. You know, as you said earlier, we have a federalist system in this country where we have a U.S. Constitution. It's very important. But state constitutions are fonts of liberty that people need to, to read and appreciate for, for what they offer. It's like and, and the last line of defense sometimes. Well, they're actually supposed to be the first line of defense in a way. Um, right. Yeah. So it's, but, the, but they're, nevertheless, they're, they're very important um, sources of constitutional strate- rights. Strategically, protection. it turns out in this case to be the last line of defense. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So the words that the Tennessee Constitution provides are that the people shall be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and possessions from unreasonable searches and seizures, and so on. So you're traveling under the Tennessee Constitution trying to get the judge to say to the TWRA, hey, guys, knock it off. Not only leave Hollingsworth and um, what's the other fellow's name? Rainwaters. Rainwaters alone. Leave everyone alone. Don't go on their property without a warrant. Don't plead putting cameras, don't go wandering around spying on people under this open fields uh, doctrine, right? Yeah, the, the, the sort of, I would say the easiest line that I can give you from, from Tennessee cases that is kind of summarizes our position in this case is that 
in this case, two years after Hester, and it's called Welch. If you want to look it up, I can give you the site. It's um, uh, 289 Southwest 510. And again, it's a Tennessee Supreme Court case from 1926. And it, not incoincidentally, involves a whiskey still. <laughs> it involves, it's a prohibition era case. And the court says <laughs> that the state constitution does not allow officers to um, enter property without a warrant and, quote, promiscuously search about in the hope or expectation of finding contraband goods, unquote. And that's what's going on here, you know, about 100 years later. You have uh, wildlife officers entering without a warrant and promiscuously searching about, not only with their bodies and eyes and and camcorders, but also with cameras they're putting in people's trees. Right. So this is this. So we've had these these three cases that we've talked about. Um, this may be why lawyers sometimes say that bad facts make bad law, right? Because in each of these, uh, now the Welch case, maybe not, but like in Hester and Oliver, it was people breaking the law, getting caught, and the and the court eventually saying, yeah, well, we caught them fair and square, <laughs> essentially, right? Yeah, I mean, I think part of the part of the problem more broadly with with a lot of the bad doctrines in Fourth Amendment law and even in state constitutional law that follows Fourth Amendment law is that it's rooted in either prohibition era cases or, or drug war era cases where where the court is being extremely deferential to to the government's interest in, you know, in my view, squelching, tamping down on perfectly voluntary activity that should not be. Right. The baby and bathwater problem. Right. And and nobody's rallying to the cause of the bootleggers and the, and the weed growers. Because uh, yeah. they're because the average person is like, well, I ain't growing weed or bootlegging, so it don't bother me. Yeah, uh, and, and as my as my mentor used to say, everybody loves justice till they get a little dose. <laughs> that's a pretty good saying. Yeah, yeah. So your the posture of your case is you file this lawsuit, and the first thing the TWRA says is, uh, dis- "Judge, dismiss this case," because um, even assuming everything that they say in their complaint as a matter of fact is accurate, they have no case. So it's a motion to dismiss, which for non-lawyers means the judge in a motion to dismiss, the judge is going to read the complaint and assume that all the facts alleged in the complaint are true. And then ask on these facts, is there any set of circumstances where the law affords the plaintiff uh, any remedy? So the TWRA's position is, at least so far, that yeah, even if we did that, you can't win. You have no case. Yeah, it's it's interesting because there are two ways in which um, the government typically responds to a constitutional lawsuit of the sort that we file. One is is a motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim, and that is not really what they brought here. Um, they did not make an argument that, for instance, the open fields doctrine forecloses this case. And I think it was smart of them not to do that, given that this is not brought under the Fourth Amendment. Um, the other way in which they might file a motion to dismiss typically is for lack of subject matter jurisdiction, which is just a fancy way of saying the court, this is not the kind of case the court can decide. But you and, filed a declaratory judgment and injunction action. So yeah, kind of, and I, I'll, I'll, I don't mind complimenting you. Um, the work you guys have done, it's quite, I don't want to say clever, um, but it's, it's, you can say that <laughs> it's okay. It's clever. Uh, but it is, uh, more importantly, it is strategically savvy because you have, you have really zeroed in on exactly what it is you want to, to address. 
Yeah, I mean, we didn't, a lot of lawyers throw in a bunch of garbage, you know, in a kind of a shotgun approach to like, well, if any one of these things works good for me, you guys haven't done that. You guys have gone in and said, this statute violates this constitutional provision. Tell them they can't do it anymore. Yeah, and that, you know, the fact that our lawsuit is as streamlined as it is, is a function of the kind, just the kind of work we do and the kind of clients we represent. And in I think most law, you know, you're trying to make every argument you possibly can for your clients. And when we team up with folks that we represent, you know, we have conversations with them about what are your motivations for doing this? You know, are you willing to make just to agree not to bring certain claims just to kind of focus the court's attention on what really matters here? And, you know, Hunter and Terry were both very comfortable with focusing this case on the constitutional issue that's going to benefit the most people in Tennessee if we can win. I think we've made this clear, but let's make it very clear. Your clients will not get a dime if they win. They no, will just be they will just be relieved of intrusive warrantless searches by TWRA agents going forward. Yeah, it's it's about the principle, it's not about the money for them. And finally, you know, it's, finally, 30 years later, this is finally the first case I've ever seen where someone said it's about the principle and it really was. Because yeah. all other times it actually is about something else. I say that facetiously. But in this case, it really is. They're not trying to get any doll any money out of this. They just want these TWRA agents, TWRA agents to stay off their property without a warrant and stay off of everyone's property without a warrant. Yeah, they want to be able to walk through their yard, their farm, their private property, their woods without being afraid that there's an officer hiding in camo in the bushes or behind the tree. Trying to catch them doing something. Right. <laughs> like not investigating an actual crime that is suspected. They are literally investigating people with no reason to believe that there is a crime being committed at all. Yeah. That's right. really what this is. It's, so, this, is uh, this is roving surveillance of private so, land. So the, um, uh, so the, the, the state's petition or motion to dismiss here says, hey, you, can't, you, you basically can't sue the TWRA at all. The, the, uh, you, you basically uh, can't sue the, the director and the agent individually at all. Um, they've also said that, um, uh, that, uh, that the declaratory judgment action has to be dismissed um, and that, um, and that any individual claims against them as for violating the constitution should be dismissed. And the judge had none of that, right? Yeah. I mean, so just, I think to make it a little bit simpler for, for folks, there's a, there's a doctrine in, in the law called standing, which basically just means that if you want to sue about something, you have to have been injured and the court has to have the power to fix it. And the, the basic argument here is that you know, these guys don't have standing because even though they've been searched in the past, um, you can't show you'll be searched in the future. And so the court can't decide this kind of case. But this is the court. This is the class. This is one of the classic what, what we used to call courier problems, right? Capable of repetition, yet evading review. They 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 walked right into that by making this claim. Yeah, I mean, again, the, like you said earlier, the judge wasn't having any of it um, at, they basically. At, it seemed it's a little disingenuous, right? I mean, I don't, I'll say it. You don't have to. For the TWRA to say, yeah, well, wait, you, they basically said, you can't sue us right now because you really don't know if we're doing that right now. You're, you have to wait until we're actually doing it. Maybe we did it. We're not going to say we didn't. 
but if we did, it was a while ago and it's not happening now. So you basically, you, you, you can't complain. Yeah, that's right. And it's, it's worth noting that it, it just isn't true that TWRA isn't, isn't doing these searches. Now, you know, my clients haven't caught them on their land recently, but that doesn't mean a, they're not doing <laughs> no it. Ki- and B, no and B, they're, B, they're, you know, we have heard from property owners in Tennessee since filing the case who have complained about TWRA officers entering their lands without a warrant. Um, right. This is now, happening today. Someone is going to think to themselves, probably not a lawyer, but someone's going to think, well, why don't you make it a class action? And I think, I guess the answer is you don't need to. If you win this case, it applies to everyone, whether they were involved in the class, so-called class or not. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think it's worth also, you know, one of the things we like to do in these cases is tell tell the stories of our clients and really humanize these issues. And it's easier to do that when you've got just a couple of plaintiffs, you know? Right. And class actions really lend themselves to... Um, to uh, sort of for money type cases, right? Like everyone who got harmed by this drug, let us know and we'll represent you in this class. In this case, you really could have done with either one of these plaintiffs by themselves, it looks to me. Um, but you you ended up with these two. So um, so what happens next? Where do you, so you, you the, the motion to dismiss was denied, which is a big hurdle to get over uh, legally because a lot of cases either suffer a fatal blow there, get dismissed altogether, or only a fragment of it remains. Your whole case is is still viable and going forward. Where do you go from here? Well, some constitutional litigation can, can be very complex, and some of it can be fact-heavy. This is not that kind of case. I, I don't anticipate, you know, we're going to have many factual disputes with the other side. Um, I think this is a pretty pure question of law, whether Tennessee follows the open fields doctrine, whether these kinds of warrantless searches and warrantless camera installations um, violate the state constitution. And, you know, there's not much discovery or, or fact finding between the parties that has to occur for that question right. to be answered. So I think that um, this case will proceed relatively quickly to a motion for summary judgment and probably cross motions for summary judgment. I mean, I expect and hope that we'll get a decision from the the trial court within a year. Well, I hope you can get it before that. But uh, you guys are busy, and I'm sure it takes a while to get in front of the judge or something like this. But yeah, the wheels of justice um, sometimes move slowly, <laughs> right? So, to to be clear for people that are not trial lawyers, a motion for summary judgment means basically we don't need a trial, we don't need to bring witnesses in and have the judge or the jury evaluate who's telling the truth and who's lying. The facts are really not in dispute. Either it's true or we're just going to say it's true that we've put cameras on people's property and we plan to keep doing it. Um, Is that or is that not a violation of Article 1, Section 7 of the Tennessee Constitution? And the judge says, "Okay, well, the facts, the facts are agreed upon. I will rule. Um, uh, Who is your judge down there, by the way? It's uh, McGinley. Okay, Creed McGinley. So Judge McGinley, who you may or may not know this, but I think Judge McGinley has um, was the judge who got tied up in this massive murder case um, out that that dragged on and on and on out there. I read about this before filing this case, actually. <laughs> yeah. So um, Judge McGinley uh, and and I'll say it so you don't have to or I don't even know if you agree, but um, Judge McGinley got quite frustrated with the state in that case and probably rightfully so. 
but nonetheless, so you've got this case. It'll be teed up in front of Judge McGinley down there, and he will decide whether or not this practice of TWRA is going to be declared constitutional or unconstitutional. No doubt there an an appeal will follow. Yes. I, it typically does in these cases, you know, the the government does not like to, to lose and to concede its power. (laughs) And so, you know, if we lose, I'm sure that it's, it's likely we'll appeal. If the state loses, it's likely they'll appeal. Because what's at stake is, is TWRA statewide, uh, doing what they've done for decades. Yeah, it's they're, I mean, they're not is, going to say, okay, we'll stop. This is well, I mean, to be clear, this is this is TWRA's bread and butter. I mean, this is um, <laughs> yes. routine. This is routine operating procedure, and this is a powerful tool they have at their disposal. And so, if, one if wonders how this, many. Yeah, one wonders how many how many tickets and uh, convictions TWRA would get without this uh, if they were denied this. Um, opportunity. Right. And that, that's a substantial source of revenue for TWRA. So um, not only do they not want to lose, you know, a, a source of power they have, but they also don't want to lose a source of revenue. So it'll probably go to the appeal. It'll probably appeal. Um, it'll, my guess is it'll probably, you, somebody will end up applying for permission to appeal or we use, I guess you, it used to be called a writ of cert to the Tennessee Supreme Court. So um, you'll probably be tied up in this case for some number of years, you think? It's possible. I mean, these, these cases often go to, to appellate courts and often to state Supreme Courts. So I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, we're asking the courts to decide um, thorny questions of state constitutional law that don't have like easy answers, right? So, um, you know, we think we're right. I'm sure the state thinks it's right. And it's for the courts to decide, you know, that question. Right. Um, and so in the meantime... Uh, presumably TWRA continues to do, continues with this practice, right? I mean, to my knowledge and based on reports that we're hearing, and if, if you're listening to this and you're somebody who knows anything about, about these practices, or if you've experienced them yourselves, you know, please reach out to us and and tell us your story and, and we'd be happy to add it to our file. Um, So Tennessee has um, three judicial divisions for appellate court purposes. Um, and I, I mean, I, I guess I hesitate to ask you this, but I will. Um, might it be helpful to have a middle district and an eastern district case um, uh, pending? Are you asking if I, if I'd like more litigation to arise? <laughs> well, if someone is similarly situated and they happen to be east of the river or uh, e- east of the Tennessee River or or east of the other or the Tennessee River on the other direction, um, is that would you take their call? Um, I, I certainly would take their call. Now, the question of, you know, whether we would file a, a parallel suit is a strategic question, I think. But um, certainly, I'd be happy to talk to anybody who, you know, thinks they have a claim against TWRA for these kinds of warrantless intrusions. Yeah, but with the understanding that you're not doing this for to get anyone money. Oh, right. I mean, IJ doesn't, in general, and the only exception to this in general is that we, we sue to get money back that's been stolen from people like in civil asset forfeiture cases or, right, okay. or so forth. The, but, you know, in general, we, own money back. Well, we don't, we don't sue for money and we don't sue to harass, you know, we sue to vindicate individual rights. Okay. All right. Well, um, so is there any way for people to, uh, to follow along? I guess they could go to the website and, and you guys, your media people seem to post regularly updates and whatnot. 
Yeah, I would just encourage folks if they haven't explored the website to go do that. You know, you can follow us on on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter. We we post you know videos all the time. We've got podcasts, as you mentioned earlier. One is called Deep Dive, and we've talked about this case um, on Deep Dive a couple times. Um, we've got a podcast called Short Circuit where we talk about you know federal circuit court opinions. Um, so we have a lot going on, and there's lots of ways that folks can stay plugged into what we're doing, but you can always just reach out to me. My email is jwindham at ij.org and I'd be happy to talk to you. Okay. Uh, so what, um, what is next? I mean, what is the next frontier for the Institute for Justice? What is the, what's the, what should we be looking for as lawyers, uh, who may be like-minded? Um, what are the issues that are coming up with it, with all this, COVID stuff and everybody's uh, digital world uh, getting hacked into or, or uh, exploited. Uh, what, what's, what's coming down the pike in these, in this type of uh, Liberty oriented litigation? Well, I won't show our hand too much, but I'll say a little bit about something we've talked about today and which is the open fields doctor. I mean, one thing that we didn't talk about this, but folks, folks should look it up if they're really interested in these issues. The U S Supreme court has over the last decade, really made a turn towards embracing a more property rights oriented approach to the Fourth Amendment. Um, A case called Jones, authored by Justice Scalia, um, and another called Jardines, um, really embraced this idea that if the government commits a trespass on your property, physically invades your property for purposes of investigating illegal activity, that's a search implicating the Fourth Amendment. Now, Scalia. Oh, like, you mean you mean Scalia decided liked a bright line? <laughs> well, I mean it's interesting <laughs> because he he dropped a very clever and I think inconsistent footnote, um, saying basically this does not apply to the open <laughs> to open fields. So there's a little carve out that says open fields doctrine is still good law. But he kind of um, had to do that because he didn't he, it, that that case didn't exactly present that issue for resolution. Yeah, right? that's right. And I think I think one so he thing he kind of had to say, hey, by the way. We'll get to it when we get to it, if we get to it, but for now. Uh, yeah, I, I read that as we don't have to decide this today. And so, and, they, and generally, they if they don't have to, they go out of their way to say they are not. Right. And so, so I think the takeaway from this recent turn towards a property-oriented approach is that I think it's possible that we'll see some, some movement, maybe not in the immediate future, but you know, over the a, next a few re- decades in, in trying to pare back the open field a retreat from Oliver? I, you know, I'd like to see it. And I think it starts with state court litigation. One thing that you, you'll, you'll notice if you follow, you know, Supreme Court jurisprudence, like over not just years, but decades, is that like often state Supreme Courts are the vanguard um, of, of, sea, of a sea change in constitutional law that the U.S. Supreme Court then follows. So it's, it stands to reason that if enough states say that we don't you know, we don't accept the open fields doctrine in our state. Maybe that'll prompt the Supreme Court to reevaluate its own cases. Right. Because, and I mean, I'm not, I'm, I do not hold myself out as a historian of Supreme Court jurisprudence or anything like it. But would it be fair to say that sometimes the Supreme Court is a revolutionary bleeding tip of the spear and sometimes they are the last to know? Yeah, I think it works both ways. Yeah, right. Sometimes they turn everything upside down and go starting now, the world is different. And sometimes they're like, yeah, you guys are right. Okay, fine. Yeah, I I think that's right. And, um, you know, hopefully, this is the kind of situation that's amenable to that 
I mean, I don't want the Supreme Court to be the last, but I think given given the state of the law in federal courts right now, and by the way, I mean, just for the record, I don't think the open fields doctrine is actually correct under the Fourth Amendment. Now, it may be, it may be beyond the scope of our conversation today, but it's what we're stuck with for now. And right. so I there's a difference between what we wish the law was and what they've told us it is. Maybe the way to start is by chipping away at things at the state court level and seeing if we can convince the Supreme Court to, to reconsider. So if you had similar litigation as this in other states? Well, we haven't, um, but that doesn't mean it hasn't existed. There are, there are a number of states that have rejected the open fields doctrine already. Um, one of the most prominent uh, was New York in a case called People v. Scott. Um, I don't have the site for that, but um, there are a number of states that have really excoriated the U.S. Supreme Court's reasoning. I think six or seven states that have, that have done this. And we're hoping to add Tennessee to that list of states that have, you know, in recent decades said, no, 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 this isn't for us. Okay, so there are there are states who are where you're hoping Tennessee gets on That's this right. open fields doctrine. That's right. And, you know, many of those states have have language in their state constitutions like Tennessee that uses the word possessions and not effects. And so the question is, does possessions mean the stuff you own by deed? Yeah, I mean, the, the general the general analysis here is like, are are you actually using this land? Uh, the distinction is the courts draw is between what they call wasteland, which is just sort of like, you know, imagine like the, the neighbor next door who hasn't cut his grass in 50 years, like that and land that people are obviously using, like I'm farming here. I've got structures here. I've got a gate up. I've got a no trespassing sign. These are all indicia of possession, according to these courts and according to Tennessee's courts. Well, is there any state that you know of where they've just drawn a bright line and said, look, if it's privately held, you can't go on it without a warrant? You know, I'm sure this, I'm sure the state courts have done it. N- you know, none is coming to mind that the, the okay. most prominent decisions on this involve that word possession. But, um, you know, I think that this goes to my point earlier about the open field doctrine. I think there is a very good argument that um, what the Fourth Amendment was intended to do was to make you secure in your property. I mean, the right um, actually protected in the Fourth Amendment, if you read it, it doesn't just say this amendment protects persons, houses, papers, effects. It says it protects the right of the people to be secure in those things, right? And, you know, what it means to be secure in your person, what it means to be secure in your house involves a lot more than just the government can't walk through your front door. Sure. But that might, I mean, I don't know. there's something to me simple about the idea that, hey, if I own it and I live here, you you can't just pop in without a warrant. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea is like, this is my place, right? This is right. my space. This is my And I sanctuary. might be anywhere upon it. Like, I mean, to some extent, the, and I haven't really thought through this very much, but to some extent, this warrantless search and, and, and surveillance type stuff, to me, sort of lends itself to like a bright line. Like, if this is my residence... What difference does it make if it's one acre or a thousand? I might be anywhere upon it at any time. Yeah, I mean, there are folks who have tried to advance these sort of new models of the Fourth Amendment, because one thing that that you'll notice if you dig into the, the Supreme Court's Fourth Amendment cases is that they're kind of, it's kind of a mess. And so what, what a lot of scholars are trying to do is to propose theories that sort of unite the court's most basic Fourth Amendment cases with what they take to be the, the you know the purpose of the amendment, which is to right. 
to forbid these unreasonable searches and seizures. And in general, so like there are a couple of formulations of this. One is just that, you know, the government can't enter your property without a warrant. That's a per se rule, unless there's a, you know, there's a few narrow exceptions. Which by the way, is probably the rule that most people walking around on the sidewalk that aren't lawyers litigating fourth amendment issues think the rule is. Well, it's, it's funny because if you read, <laughs> if you read, you know, recent, but not, not only recent, but older U.S. Supreme Court cases, if you read just like the first two or three paragraphs of the court's discussion, you'll see this sort of rote recitation of what the law is. It's like, uh, you know, the Fourth Amendment protects this, this, and this. Um, warrantless searches are personally unreasonable outside of the And then 10,000 words explaining how that's not what we really meant. Yeah, exactly. It, <laughs> it breaks down very quickly. But if you just cut it off after the first paragraph, things sound really great. All right. That's why I learned a long time ago when I'm reading an appellate opinion, don't get excited. Don't get excited on page two. Yeah, there's always a but. Right. Uh, Yeah. So. All right. So without tipping your hand, maybe more of this open field stuff is on the IC or IJ uh, agenda. Yeah. And if I could, you know, you asked about other kinds of things given COVID. I would just, you know, we released a a really interesting report um, last week called Conning the Competition. And this is about state certificate of need laws. And one thing that folks I often don't don't know until I tell them is that, so there's this big, there's this big crisis when COVID hit about hospital beds and a shortage of medical supplies. And right. And so just, the, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but for, for people that maybe don't know, certificate of need stuff is basically where the, where that regime exists. Uh, you basically have to go to the government and say, Hey, we want to put a hospital or a medical treatment facility in this location to do this. And the government has to say, okay or not. Um, and if you're, if you, if you're advocating for this type of regulation, you're saying, well, we don't want the, the services to get out of way. We don't want to saturate, oversaturate. We don't, it's important that we know how many doctors and how many beds and all that are there so that we can tailor it to the needs of the community. If you are opposed to this kind of thing, you're saying, yeah, this is exclusionary practice. They're just trying to keep their doctors employed. They don't care about you. Yeah. And, you know, the the consequences of this sort of, you know, protectionist legislation is that the supply of much needed, artific- much needed medical services is artificially, you know, tamped down and the market is so much less dynamic and able to respond to crises like this, you know, the, the system that these con laws have set up is that you have to, the burden of proof is on you as somebody who's an entrepreneur to go and beg permission from a bureaucrat to like, let, let me provide these healthcare services that well, people and it's need. Not, yeah. And it's not just the bureaucrat. Frequently, these are full blown hearings where the people who are already in the market providing these services come in and say, don't let them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And right, so you get opposed by the people whose business you would be um, competing with. Right. And so so the point um, that I'm making is that, you know, this is an area that we're con- we've worked in for years, but that we're continuing to work in and try to push back on these laws that, you know, the consequences of them have really been laid bare um, in this pandemic. And I think that folks should be more and more skeptical than ever of government trying to say that an entrepreneur can't provide you know, a healthcare service that a patient really needs. Well, I think, I mean, uh, I, I think you would probably find a lot of people who would say that they are um, free market capitalists, you know, entrepreneurial types um, who uh, who are unaware that uh, when it comes to something like healthcare, um, 
a lot of places don't really have an open market uh, and a competition. They, they yeah, have, I mean, that's, they have a that's gatekeeper, <laughs> a highly politicized gatekeeper, um, who is frequently these are these boards are what appointed by some elected official. Yeah, they're often appointed by the governor. And I mean, one one obvious mm-hmm. example of this that that's pretty prominent is that in New York, you know, when things really got bad, um, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic and, and with COVID, you know, the, the Governor Cuomo had to suspend the state's con law just so that people could set up these like little hospital tents on the street outside of, you know, established hospitals because, you know, well, what was the problem? No one could, you couldn't have permission to build a hospital. And so you can't build a hospital in a day, right? And so the, the governor had to suspend these laws in order to allow, uh, you know, supply to, to quickly um, excel to meet where demand was headed. So <laughs> these are dangerous laws and I'm glad they're being drawn back during COVID, but, you know, I hope these drawbacks stay because these Yeah, are- well, that, that was done by emergency order. One, you know, uh, I do think, I do hope that um, the, where those regimes exist, that they are now wondering whether or not they are worth keeping. Yeah, that's that's the thought. And um, anyways, you know, we're, we're doing more and more work in this space and we'll continue to. So folks can check that out as well. All right. Well, listen, man, this has been uh, very interesting. Um, as I said earlier, people can find you and your colleagues at uh, IJ.org. It's the Institute for Justice. Um, you can follow along on this this case from Camden, Tennessee, um, on their website. Um, and, uh, I will look forward to following it too. And I, at some point, uh, we'll probably have you back on to do uh, what happened next type thing. Yeah. I'd love to come back. Thanks very much for having me. All right. I'm gonna be honest with you. That one bothers me. Uh, I'm just not comfortable with the idea that statewide, a law enforcement agency has a policy and practice of walking onto people's property putting cameras sneaking around surveilling them and then jumping out of the bushes and saying gotcha that's just not okay with me so i'm going to be following this one closely uh and i really hope that they are able to get some relief for these landowners and for everyone in tennessee um for law enforcement to come onto your property and surveil you like that i think they should at least have enough uh evidence to get a warrant to do it so as usual thank you for listening If you like what I'm doing, you know, like, subscribe, share. If you think you'd be a good guest, holler at me. I'm easy to find. Uh, Until next time, this is Dana McClendon, and this has been Ready for Trial.